This is Maureen Milliken. And this is Rebecca Milliken, and this is Crime and Stuff. The podcast. You would do if you had nothing better to do. And tonight, we're recording on Zoom. Yes, it's so exciting. I can see you. We spent about 45 minutes fucking around with um, (laughs) trying to set it up to record into Audacity with the new audio equipment. I won't get into all the details about it after i spent all afternoon figuring it out and doing it part of it is things on youtube and everything that explain how to do things often leave out major details it sometimes it reminds me of when i was learning to drive a car we had a standard shift which i always, I always drive a stick shift I dad was teaching me and he forgot to tell me that as you let up on the clutch you let up on the clutch as you put down the gas the sequence of doing it of course the car stalled and he's like "Eh, you're supposed to blah 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 and i'm like well how how would i know that and that's kind of what it always reminds me of when i try to do this tech stuff where i'm sure there's just some one tiny little obvious thing that we're not doing right but anyway we don't want to dwell i think the zoom thing's working out well because at least we can see each other yes Although last episode, we were together in together person, again. and I think I had the sample rate set wrong. We used the new yeah, audio sorry, equipment. The, the audio, we didn't notice it until I well, was, when I listened okay. to it. I it was noticed... just very low. I had to turn it way up. Right. And then and the beep at the end where the outtakes. Was, yeah, because I lowered the other stuff to make loud. it match. But hopefully people could hear us. Usually it's not a problem. I was going to have an update. Episode, yes. oh shit, I didn't look it up. Episode, oh shit. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. That's a weird thing uh-huh. for an episode. Uh-huh. Anyway, the Dadarian brothers who owned the Station Nightclub, which was part of our Coconut Grove Station Nightclub Fires episode, are doing some kind of um, speaking tour, mitigating their responsibility. I'm not sure quite why the Boston Globe interview with them said it's to get ahead of the narrative as the anniversary, 20th anniversary comes up, but it's a little early for that. They were on an episode of 48 Hours, but I haven't watched it yet. And next episode, I will talk about it. So that's like a preview of an update. And also we had (laughs) a question on our Facebook page from a listener today didn't say where they were from but they're from overseas the name is senid i hope i'm pronouncing that correctly roberts asking about our accents and i think we talked a little about this last time i had said in episode 108 the joyce mclean episode that i wasn't gonna do a main accent yeah i, I said i think i said i liked or you weren't gonna TV. try i wasn't or, gonna yeah. try and we both laughed about that and senid i again i hope i'm pronouncing your name right confused first of all as to why we don't have main accents uh-huh. and what a main accent is and i think we mentioned we're originally from elmira new york which uh-huh. is in the western part of new york and even though we haven't lived there most of our lives our accents live on i think our accents are are similar they're not as pronounced mine is probably an amalgam of places i've lived right and so to enlighten people on a main accent I was getting some work done on my car, and one person who has a a central main, central and western main accent is my car mechanic, Tim Cottle. And so I recorded him. Do do we have to ask people's permission? No, not a man. Okay. And I didn't tell him I was recording him because I don't (laughs) want him to be self-conscious. And I I guarantee he is not going to ever listen to this podcast. And there is some car noise because it's a typical main auto garage 
out there, you know, in the country. You, yeah, well, it's about um, a mile south of the village I live in, and Route 27 goes by. It's a little busy, and there's some other guy, and I don't know who he was. He has a little bit of a main accent. He was yeah, very he interested in my car for whatever reason. Well, it's not the most exciting conversation you'll ever. I'm gonna say the nature of the conversation is also very main. Yes. Like, why don't I just play it? So you think you can have it by Friday morning? Yeah, that's my plan. Okay. Yeah, I already got the parts, the brakes and stuff, but he's, he's coming to pick it up. The tire guy called me. He's on his way, so so he's going to take the tires with him, and he'll bring them back tomorrow all done. All righty. And I'll do the, the rotors and the pads and the wheel bearing and change the oil. I got all that stuff. Great. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Struts? Huh? Does that need struts or something? No. No. He just didn't rotate the tires. He drives a lot. He was. I was before the pandemic. Yeah. Now I don't know what. 500 miles a month? I don't know. Sometimes I go to New Hampshire to visit oh, my yeah. sister and mostly just to Augusta for groceries. <laughs> okay. You'll never buy another Subaru, let me tell you that. No. That's my first and last Subaru. Yeah, I don't know where they get so the claim to pain because I. Boy, you got to put a lot of money in it. Well, it handles nice in the snow, but I've, I've never gone for more brakes brakes on it constantly. Wheel bearings, brakes. Yeah. And I use good shit, too. Yeah. And it goes through oil like that. Oh, yeah, they're leaking. But no, it don't have a leak. No? It, no. it just burns it. it just, yeah. All right. You all set to walk down? Yeah, yeah, I need the exercise. So just, uh... Run then. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, I think it's going to go over yeah. uh, around 15 or 1500 or yeah. so. Let me know, so I'll be sure to scrape up the money somewhere. Yeah. All right. Okay, thanks. Okay. Now the tires will five something. Um, like I said, it was <laughs> the world's most exciting. Yeah, but that's very typical. I mean, it's not overdone. That's <laughs> That is a main accent and for anybody who was wondering. Some people have more of one. Some people have less and of one. And so they the overdone ones, they go, yeah, which isn't really, I know some people do go, yeah, but it's more of a, yeah. I can't yeah, do it you could hear him it. do it. Yeah. And that kind of joking around kind of thing. I mean, then, not that people in other parts of the country don't joke around it too, but it's just a, <laughs> He knows you so well. He tells the other, oh yeah, she drives a lot. He tells yeah, the yeah. other guy, well, whoever that other guy was that was yeah, quite interested. Who knows who he was. He, yeah. But so. um, yeah, he grew up in the Augusta area and is our age and people where we grew up that they either had that accent or they had the french canadian accent right which maybe if i can find an example of the new england french Canadian. i I know i worked with a couple people that have you don't hear it as much when i was back working in auburn i heard it more right lewis in the portland area you know well when we were in manchester last week manchester new hampshire i was thinking when we were over on the west side where i lived which was the french canadian part of the city that I heard people actually speaking French almost yeah. every day over there in the grocery store and stuff. I don't know if you do it as much, if you hear as much of it now as you would have when I, I lived there from 86 to, to 2011. So, you know, there's a very strong French Canadian 
population that came to work in the oh, mills yeah. and i think people still go back and forth so there's i think there's still a lot of people speaking french and yeah probably. this just came to me right now but a facebook friend of mine who i don't know if she listens or not holly but she was saying how she was going on some cross-country trip and they picked they decided i think they let alexis or one of those oh. pick some of the songs but they oh. wanted to Alexa. pick a song a song for each state mm. so maine was Tim McGraw, Portland, Maine, which I started listening to it and I got annoyed because he says- What the fuck is Tim McGraw writing a story about Portland, Maine? Is he from like Alabama or No, in the song he says, Portland, Maine, I don't even know where that is. And so I said, fuck you. And I turned and the song off. And get a fucking so map out, Sorry. asshole. I said, well, if I were to pick, the only one I can think of off the top of my head is the county song or- state of maine by the wicked good band as somebody i don't know answered me my husband knows that song he grew up in oxford county so uh, well funny. what about king of the road by roger miller yeah he just it's not really about destination maine. Bangor. banger he says Bangor, maine all worn out suit and shoes the wicked good band song i think state the jackson brown song the loadout oh, mentions, yeah. Por- yes, mentions portland says, there i mean there are songs that mention 295 out of portland maine yeah. and then dave mallet has a lot of maine songs but then yeah. he's from maine so he doesn't yeah. really count doesn't count but anyway so anyways i wanted to do something totally different you know how i like to do the celebrity ones. yeah sometime. you like them yeah you're like a podcasting us magazine you know what i still am loyal to people magazines yes, yeah. and i still read us magazine but it's gotten so bad with product placement every friggin photograph someone's holding some product yeah. and i'm just sick of it but i wonder I still- if i could get a celebrity to hold one of my books in a photo i don't know you know maybe what we should do is stock one and i'll i'll take your book like i'll bump into them or something and like shove the book in their hands oh that's an idea and then you can take a picture and yeah. then it's a win-win because you can get like the paparazzi like money that they get for a picture oh yeah yeah along with especially if it's someone like megan markle or someone like that we'd we would have to go outside of maine i think <laughs> patrick dempsey patrick is here dempsey. once in a while he's not big enough you need somebody really no. big yeah so Megan Markle, I'll, I'll try to think good. about it. But anyway, so I found this because I was I was just scrolling through and I said, oh, I remember that. You know what? That would be a good one to do. Mm. So so um, this week and it still will be in the news when we're um, this podcast comes out. But that whole movie set shooting Alec Baldwin right. you know, went off and that poor photography and, director. Yes, we were going to talk about that a little, but it's changing so fast that I just listened to a real crime profile episode Ooh, about Laura. it where Jim Clemente and a guy who oh, who had Laura a lot of actually on. interesting things. No, Laura wasn't on. Interesting things to say, but it was before the sheriff's department said, yeah, it was a live round. So they were, they were talking a lot more about so maybe we can talk about it, the thing in more depth next time. But I was going to yes. say for this time, we don't want to say stuff that by the time this goes up in a few days Will is going to be obviated by, right. But so any, he talked to the to people. By he, do you mean Alec Baldwin? Alec Baldwin. Yeah. He's in Vermont, apparently, with his oh, wife. So by. these reporters, <laughs> these reporters, um, maybe we should shove your book in his hands. These reporters, he was talking to them. He's not supposed to talk to them. He told them he wasn't, but apparently he can't help himself. He I didn't really say that. anything but his wife kept trying to make him stop talking and he kept getting being pissy with her which annoyed me where were they 
on I'm some country road walking. In Vermont. They were like probably going for a walk and these reporters have been staking out his, wherever he's staying. Wow. Which, you know. But anyways, <laughs> he was being a real dink to his wife. I mean, he was just... Well, he was kind of a dink. He was trying to make him shut up and he wouldn't. He yeah. wasn't saying anything. He was just like, oh, Ark's it's a well-oiled machine and all this. And it's like, no, it's not, honey. Yeah, it but obviously whatever. wasn't. I do want to say this because I just want it when it comes out more to be proven right. Before they were talking about target practice on the set, I said to you. Yes, you did. I bet because they're I'm out in the desert and there's a lot of guys and there's a lot of guns that they were target practicing. Mm-hmm. And somehow, because how else is live ammo, which isn't supposed to be on a second, it get in the set. Exactly. And I, that is sounding a little more like it might be part of what happened. Mm-hmm. And, and, and of I just want to say I, the young woman's going to get blamed for everything. Right. Probably- I was going to say that. To my guesses, and it was her responsibility. Yes. But my guesses, and we may never know this, and it's obviously just speculation from my 50 years of working with men in male dominated <laughs> businesses, that she was probably trying to do her job, but was constantly getting overridden exactly. and ignored exactly. by exactly. guys who thought they knew more. Yes. Because why else was a guy? who wasn't supposed to be handing the gun to Alec Baldwin exactly. handing the gun. Exactly. And, I, and so my guess is she's going to be scapegoated. And people are blaming Alec too. And part of the blame on Alec is I know because of his left wing power. Pol- yeah. Well, politics. I want to point out that the guy on real crime profile, who's a weapons expert, who's, uh, who's often called to scenes of movies and TV shows to be on. And I can't remember the guy's name. It's John something said mm-hmm. the actor is not responsible for okay. the safety of the gun that there are a lot of people whose job it is. The actor has to think of a lot of other things. Don't a lot of shit. actors That's aren't gun saying. experts. The armorer is supposed to be, it, there are all these levels it's supposed to go exactly. to before it's put in the actor's hand. Like they weren't saying Alec Baldwin and stuff on this real crime profile episode, but he but said the actor, yeah. right, the actor is not the one responsible for the safety of the gun that is other people's jobs the thing that is kind of bugging me but people like well you don't point a gun at somebody you know and it's like if you're an actor in a scene where you're pointing a gun at somebody then yes you point a gun at somebody right that's why they have all these safeguards right and they have safeguards to avoid that like in general like these guys on this other podcast are saying in general you don't and like, if you're pointing at, at the camera, they have this like bulletproof exactly. plexiglass and stuff, all this stuff that happens since oh, the Brandon Lee thing. Yes. But that anywhere the gun points, there are going to be people in the line of fire because we don't see it when we watch a movie, but there's like a hundred people. Exactly. Or, and and exactly. this thing there weren't because there were like well, 13 or 14. And that guy on Rachel Maddow said, if one mistake had happened, this woman probably wouldn't have died, but there were several mistakes. Right. That shouldn't have happened. But anyways, right. so anyway, we can we'll talk, talk more, more about, about it. it next episode. Yeah. So this is not anything like that, except for <laughs> a gun did go off. And I have my opinions on it. So we'll talk at the end. We can talk at the end about what our... And a celebrity was involved. Yes. But it was a matter of people thinking that the person shooting it was, it was to blame. So right. I will start. If you follow the news in 1976 and 1977, there was a lot of stuff going on. Jimmy Carter's presidential campaign against incumbent Gerald Ford, Legionnaire's disease, Mm. the Entebbe hostage crisis, the first flights of the Concord SST jet, that supersonic that doesn't run anymore, the United States bicentennial, Elvis Presley's death, Saturday Night Fever, 
with John Travolta was Mm -hmm. all the rage. And Ted Bundy was running around the country. One story that doesn't make the list, but was on the news a lot, is the story I'm covering today. I know it had to be on the news a lot because I was only in fifth or sixth grade, and I remember it well. Of course, I didn't know all the details back then, but I remember the principles and what they looked like and who they were. And I did remember some of the details as I researched this, that things came to me and I'm like, oh, I remember that. So here are my sources. I have lots of sources. Mm. United Press International Associated Press, the Colorado Springs Gazette Telegraph, the Grand Junction Colorado Daily Sentinel, the Greeley Colorado Daily Tribune, the Fort Collins Coloradoan, And those were all, by the way, newspapers.com, which unfortunately does not have the Aspen Times, which is a weekly, it's a small weekly, but I did have some info from the Aspen Times from other sources, and I found some online. I also used information from the Washington Post, People Magazine, British GQ, and Tahoe Quarterly, a 2000 episode of E! True Hollywood Story, A Death in Aspen, a 2006 episode of Power, Privilege, and Justice with Dominic Dunn called The Starlet and the Skier. And mm. episode 18 from season one of Saturday Night Live airing April 24th, 1976. And there was a publication in 2005 called California Conversations that I found online. And a 1997 article in the New Yorker magazine by James Salter. And there's probably even more because mm. there was like, ugh. so let's get started. Claudine Langer and Spider Savage first met at a celebrity pro-am ski race in Bear Valley, California in 1972. Claudine, the wife of singer or crooner, (laughs) they never call him singer, it's always crooner. Andy Williams was an amateur skier celebrity participant. Spider was obviously on the professional part of the pro-am. Claudine was separated and she and her husband had been dating others. She was an actress and singer who was fairly well known at the time, having taken part in the Andy Williams show and Christmas specials for that previous decade, as well as being in a movie with Peter Sellers and having a fairly successful recording career. Even after their separation, Claudine continued to appear in Andy Williams TV shows. Spider, whose given name was Vladimir, had come in fifth in the 1968 Olympics in Grenoble, France, in the slalom at age 22. He was supposedly the inspiration for Robert Redford's character in the 1969 movie Downhill Racer. Mm. Like Robert Redford, Spider was handsome and blonde with a big white smile. By the time Spider met Claudine, he'd won the slalom at the World Cup in 1968, which was a few weeks after the Olympics, and also the U.S. Ski Championships in 1971 and 1972. Had been in the top 10 finishers 18 times on the World Cup circuit. And thanks to the Saturday afternoon show, Wide World of Sports, mm. he was becoming pretty well known. And you remember that show? And they always showed some skier, skier wiping, wiping out. out. The thrill of victory, the agony of We used to feet. watch that show, though. Yeah, every Saturday. Because there's nothing else on. When Claudine and Spider met in a bar in Bear Valley after the event, they had an immediate attraction to each other. Ooh. They began a relationship while she was still living in California and Spider was building a home in Aspen, Colorado, where he had decided to settle once he went pro. The house was a chalet-style home in the exclusive gated community called Starwood. His next-door neighbor was musician John Denver. Oh, Sometime in 1975, Claudine and Andy finalized their divorce, and Claudine and her three children, Noel 11, Christian 9, and Bobby 5, moved to Aspen to live with Spider. 
On March 21st, 1976, their life as a family came to an end when Claudine shot Spider once and he died. Now, there are a lot of theories and speculation about why Claudine shot Spider, whether it was murder or an accident. Claudine is the only person who knows for sure, and she will probably never tell the whole story about what happened. But let me tell you about Spider and Claudine, and we can discuss our own ideas. I'll start with Claudine since she was older. Claudine Georgette Langer was born on January 29, 1942 in Paris. Her mother was a doctor and her father was an x-ray technician, according to Andy Williams. Other sources said he was an industrialist specializing in x-rays, but I figure Andy would know better what his father-in-law did for work. In her late teens, Claudine became a show dancer. When she was 17, Las Vegas club owner Lou Walter saw her on French TV and hired her, along with other women from all over the world in the United States, to dance in the Folie Bergère. In a photo and news item that went over the wire from December 1959, Claudine was shown with five other dancers doing a high kick. The caption read, Dancers criticize American men. Six of the 50 shapely dancers imported from Paris for the Folie Bergère at a Las Vegas hotel demonstrate one of their steps after explaining yesterday what they don't like about American men. Most agreed they find American males lacking in attentiveness, and some found them tight with money and too fat. (laughs) And I also want to say about newspapers, which I never noticed until doing like all this research on newspapers.com, just scrolling through newspapers and not necessarily things that are relevant to what I'm researching. Anytime there's a photo of a scantily clad woman, they love to run them yes. in newspapers. That's, they love well, to. I well, don't think well, they do it as much as they used no, to, but no, they, they used don't. to do it all the time. They're, they're more aware now. When I was working um, for the union leader in New Hampshire, in fact, the Sunday editor, and I'd say this was maybe about 20 years ago, what's her name china xxx oh, yeah. was in town for some reason and there's this picture of her and her like her american flag <laughs> bikini astride a harley and it was played very large on the <laughs> front page of the sunday news and the publisher was not pleased of my memory of that so <laughs> so it was falling out of favor by then you know <laughs> I certainly, as a newspaper editor who frequently was in charge of what photos would go in and stuff, was not one to allow photos of scantily clad women. Anyway, the article that circulated at the same time read, several beauties imported from Paris to open the holiday season bear little goodwill toward American men. They're free with love, tight with money, says Luba Gutnik, 18, Brooklyn born and twice wed. They're too fat, says Lillianne Roth of Copenhagen, who's single. Oh, she's 22. They don't take care of the women, alleges Claudine Langer, 18, from Paris and also unwed. The girls are part of a company of 80. They come from Germany, England, Denmark, Sweden, and France. So the first sentence is wrong. They're not all from France. Most are seeing America for the first time. Most are tall, about five foot seven, and most are unmarried. All are interested in money. 
And that's the end of the article. It's All like, are interested in money. Well, none of them said anything it? about money. I know. I know. Claudine appeared alone in several photos that the news services distributed in 1960. One in April showed her in a bathing suit splashing in a pool. The caption read, French dunk. Come on in. The water's fine, chirps 18-year-old Claudine Langer from Paris, now one of the dancers in a nightclub in Las Vegas, Nevada, as she takes a dip in one of the town's outdoor pools. In August 1960, there was a photo also printed in newspapers across the country of Claudine standing in a two-piece bathing suit. The caption read, Transplanted Claudine Langer, 18 Parisienne can-can dancer in the Folie Berger in Las Vegas, has been signed for a leading role in the new Folies opening this fall. There was an article in November in the Los Angeles Mirror with the headline, New Edition of Folie Berger opens at Tropicana in Vegas Wednesday. There was a half-page photo of Claudine in a flouncy outfit. The caption read, Claudine Langer, pretty 19-year-old Parisienne, will be one of the dancers in the new edition of the Folie Berger opening Wednesday night at the Hotel Tropicana in Las Vegas. Claudine has danced in many Paris clubs and appeared in films. There was another widely distributed article in November 1960 written by Joe Hyams of the HTNS, which is some news service, but I couldn't. Herald oh, Tribune. Herald yeah, Herald Tribune had a syndicated news service. Oh, you're so smart. I knew you'd know it. Anyway, uh, this gives your mindset of the uh, 1960, in case you didn't watch Mad Men. Uh, Las Vegas, HTNS, the Folie Berger at the Tropicana Hotel here, open to a packed house, and never have I seen so many beautiful girls in such fabulous and brief costumes. As each of the 64 girls paraded across the stage, I wondered what a nude or semi-nude thinks of while she's working. After the show, I asked the girls, Bernice Clark, England, I think of all the girls in the show I owe money to and how I'm going to pay them. Claudine Langer, France, I came to work late today and was hoping I wouldn't be fined. I smiled pretty at the dance director, but I don't think he noticed or cared. Felicia Atkins, Australia, I have some lines to say, you know, and I always think of them. When I forget one, I wish I were a comic so I could be legitimately funny. Mona Arvidsson, Sweden. I think mostly about the number and following the girl who is in front of me. She walks too fast. There was more to that article, but you get the gist. Stupid stuff. There are several different stories about how Andy, who was a headlining singer in Vegas back then, and Claudine met in 1960. Some say she was out of gas. Some say she had car trouble. And Andy Williams stopped to help her. Some say that story is crap and he just saw her dancing one night and mm -hmm. wanted to date her. And this is what Andy Williams told People magazine in 1976. She was the head dancer at the Folie Berger. She had just come over from France. I was walking back to the hotel and there she was. She had a stalled car, which he helped push. Andy was 32 at the time and Claudine was 18. Mm. Andy Williams, if you've never heard of him, was the youngest of the four brothers singing group, the Williams Brothers from Wall Lake, Iowa. By the time he met Claudine, he was singing solo with his own show in Las Vegas. And he has a beautiful voice. Claudine was doing well in Las Vegas, making $800 per week, which is about $7,400 per week nowadays. Andy told People Magazine, I married her for her money. <laughs> <laughs> she thought the whole United States was like Las Vegas. She took a taxi from the L.A. airport and tried to pay the driver with a gambling chip. 
Andy Williams and Claudine Langer married in December 1961. I think they married on Christmas Day, actually. Oh, that was my first Christmas. Oh. Andy had already had a TV show, a summer replacement series, the year before he met Claudine in 1959. In the fall of 1962, he had a weekly series that started, which later went to bi-weekly, if that's every two weeks. It alternated with another show after right. a while, but for 1962, it was weekly. It was called The Andy Williams Show. It ran for five seasons. It was a musical variety show, which had singing and skits, which was very popular back in the 60s I actually and 70s. remember that show from my childhood. He was huge. I know. He was a really big star. In 1969, he came back to television with a weekly variety show that lasted two seasons. So that might be the one you remember. But what he was best known were for his Christmas specials, of which there were at least a half a dozen. And then he was in other people's shows all the time, too, singing. His nickname was Mr. Christmas. And the song he is best known for, the Christmas song, is It's the Most Wonderful Time of the Year, which you hear all the time still. It's the most wonderful time of the year. With the kids jingle belling and their... Claudine, his wife, would pop up on his shows and they would sing duets. She had a soft, breathy way of singing with a strong French accent that was very appealing to people. And it still seems to be judging from the comments on YouTube, which I try not to read, but I was researching. It's hard not um, to. Claudine got guest star work on a lot of TV shows that were on at the time, such as McHale's Navy, Rat Patrol, Laughing, The Bold Ones, alias Smith and Jones. She was also on a lot of talk shows like Merv Griffin. She was on Merv Griffin many times. And then I saw a photograph of her with him. I think they were friends. She was probably a good guest because they like her French accent. And The Tonight Show. On the series Run for Your Life, which ran from 1965 to 1968, she played Nicole, a French author and love interest of the star Ben Gazzara. The premise of the show was that this guy had nine to 18 months to live. So he was traveling around meeting people, et cetera. So kind of like a lot of shows like Route 66 and stuff were like that, where they kind of go to different towns right. and meet people. Claudine was on a couple times in 1966 and 1967. In one episode, her character played the guitar and sang Meditation, a jazz standard written by Antonio Carlos Hobim. I think that's how his name's pronounced. It's J-O-B-I-M, Hobim. You guys can tell me if you're jazz enthusiasts out there. She sang in French and English, accompanying herself on the guitar. I read on YouTube and Wikipedia, so it's got to be true. Mm. Um that Herb Alpert of the Tijuana Brass (laughs) saw her and gave her a recording contract based on that episode. And this may be true because somebody gave her a recording contract. And according to People Magazine, she made $50,000 on the recording of meditation and used 40,000 of it to buy a house lot in Malibu. In 1968, Claudine co-starred with Peter Sellers in the Blake Edwards movie, The Party. I watched clips of it. And it's supposed to be funny, but I couldn't get past Peter Sellers in dark makeup playing an Indian guy. He's mm. the star. And he plays a guy who's at this party. And I think I've seen it. it I've seen it. Very, very familiar. Yes. She played the girl who caught Peter Sellers' eye. And she sang a Harry Mancini song. All the music was Harry Mancini in the movie called Nothing to Lose. Mm. And by the way, 
One of Andy Williams' signature songs was a Harry Mancini song, Moon River. In the following years, Claudine released seven music albums. Her first album, Claudine, reached number 11 on the Billboard charts in 1967 for pop music. Other albums debuted at 29 and 33. She recorded her later albums on Andy Williams' record label, Barnaby, which prompts a lot of the sources I read to say that without her husband, she would not have had a recording career. Hmm. But the album Claudine did sell over 500,000 copies, and her music is still used on a lot of productions today. For instance, the Gilmore Girls had Claudine's version of God Only Knows, and I think it's going to rain today on two of its episodes. She's been used on other shows, too. Yes, she was the wife of Andy Williams, who was hugely popular back then. He was handsome from Iowa, seemed wholesome and had a beautiful voice. Claudine is his wife and co-star on his Christmas shows, of course, reap the benefits of being his wife. I mean, why wouldn't she? Yeah. Why the fuck wouldn't you? Come on. Right. But people always are so quick to like be, she did this as if you wouldn't do the same thing. Come on, people. No shit. But she also had a kind of charm and magnetism of her own. She came to the United States as a teenager and had her picture in the national press several times before she met Andy Williams. Had she not met and married him, chances are she would have met and married some other well-known guy or rich guy because it was the 1960s and it was Las Vegas and she was a pretty French dancer. So, Mm -hmm. And she still may have made a career acting and singing. She had a star quality. She wasn't Andy's wife when her picture kept getting in the paper. Right. I mean, she was in the paper a few times. In 1969, Andy joked about Claudine's difficulty in learning English when they first met. He said he'd often get her to make mistakes in front of people. I guess he thought that was funny. Yeah. For example, Andy would say, what kind of car do we have, dear? And Claudine would answer, a two-ton comfortable. Hardy har. Like two-ton convertible. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah, I wonder how his French was. I know. About her singing success, Andy said there was no competition. I did tell her not to use my songs, however. Claudine's song list was mostly standards and soft rock hits. Like if you go on YouTube, she's on there. Beatles, Carpenters, Joni Mitchell. And they're all the ones, you know, the Beatles songs are all the ones like uh, Here, There, and Everywhere. Right. Stuff like that. Yesterday. Yeah. yeah. And some standards. And she does them in her own unique, her like breathy, like, ah. and, so, and talking in the songs, which was popular in the, mm. in the 60s too. She also had other talents. An item in a gossip column in 1968 said, Claudine Langer, the beautiful blonde, which she was never blonde, wife of Andy Williams, has a new career staked out, if she wants it. A rabid photography fan, Claudine's photographs of Ray Charles will be used to promote his upcoming Carnegie Hall concert. Those in the photographic know claim her work stacks up with the best professionals in the business. And by the way, I did look online to see if I could find any of her photographs of Ray Charles, and I was not able to. Claudine and Andy had fun while they were married, palling around with people like Bobby and Ethel Kennedy. In 1967, the Associated Press wrote, Singer Andy Williams says he'll be cruising down the Colorado River this summer with Senator Robert F. Kennedy, D. New York, and his family. Last year, Williams' wife, Claudine, joined the Kennedys for a trip down the middle fork of Idaho's Salmon River, but he had singing commitments. In fact, Andy and Claudine were in Bobby's suite at the Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles the night Bobby Kennedy was shot and killed, June 5th, 1968. Andy rushed downstairs when he heard his good friend had been shot. 
At Bobby Kennedy's televised funeral, a lot of viewers remembered Andy consoling and comforting Claudine as she sobbed. One article I read said, oh, remember how emotional she was, how she sobbed uncontrollably at Bobby Kennedy's funeral? It's like she was a young woman. She was only in her 20s. You know what? I've got news for whoever wrote that fucking article. A lot of people sobbed uncontrollably when Bobby Kennedy died. I did when I watched the documentary. (laughs) And their youngest son, Bobby, was named after Bobby Kennedy. In 1970, Claudine and Andy Williams separated. Andy told People Magazine years later, it was very difficult to live together compatibly. Her interests were so different from mine. I was Mm. interested in the establishment. She would be playing tennis with Peter Fonda, and I would be playing golf with Bing Crosby. (laughs) I don't know why we separated when we did. We probably shouldn't have gotten married to begin with. She was stifling me in a way. She's a very strong lady. Mm. So in other words, he couldn't get his way all the time <laughs> and also didn't know how to be in a relationship with somebody with different interests because it should be all well, about when him. they met. She was 18. Yeah. yeah. There's also a quote which I couldn't find and I saw it in two places and then I looked and looked because I thought it was funny and I couldn't find it. But he said something like she could only stand me for about two and a half days at a time. <laughs> in 1973. In the syndicated Hollywood hotline column, Nancy Anderson interviewed Claudine about her unusual marital situation. The headline was, Claudine Langer loves Andy like a sister. <laughs> I'll read some of the article, but I, unfortunately, I'm not going to try to do a French accent and talk like Claudine, although everything I read, I because I saw a lot of film of her when I was doing right. my research. I pictured her saying this stuff. Of course, I'm not jealous when Andy dates other girls, Claudine Lager told me in a heart to heart about her estranged husband, Andy Williams. I love Andy like a sister, like a sister, Claudine. I said, that's not very flattering to Andy. Oh, but it is, Claudine assured. You see, I love my sister dearly and love to be with her, but I'm not jealous when she has a date and I feel the same way about Andy. I'd be heartbroken if he wanted a divorce. It's so much nicer dating Andy now than it used to be, because now when we are together, it's because we want to be. We don't have to play the games that we had to play before. I adore Andy, but I never want to be married again. It's so hard for some people to understand that you don't have to hate someone just because you don't want to sleep with them. That's Claudine for you, a very outspoken French lady. Mm. She is the look of a little girl, a mind like a razor, and in an interview, the candor of George Washington. If she'd cut down the cherry tree, she'd tell you. Later in the article, Claudine talks about her love of skiing, which she acquired because of the couple's friendship with Bobby and Ethel Kennedy. Claudine tells Nancy she's now a pretty good skier. I was the fastest girl at the Pro-Am tournament. Claudine also said in an interview, unlike most girls who like to unwind after the midnight show, I went straight back to my apartment to wake up in good shape to go skiing. I fell in love with Andy through sport. Claudine also told a story about going skiing in Chile the previous summer, the southern hemisphere's winter, obviously. There had been a blizzard and an avalanche. Claudine said, it took us five hours to ski down the mountain. It was snowing so hard you couldn't see three feet ahead. And Claudine accidentally skied off a trail. And she says, snow had covered my skis so that I couldn't lift them. And I'd lost my gloves. I thought it will take my friends two hours to get to the bottom of the mountain and another half hour to discover that I am missing. And then so long to come back and find me that I'll be frozen to death. All around, I could hear the avalanche groaning. 
Sometimes I thought they wouldn't even find my body. Snow was falling so hard. It wouldn't have been so bad if it hadn't been in Chile where almost nobody cared what happened to me. I sat there and cried. And then I thought to hell with this and dug myself out. When Claudine reached the base of the mountain, her friends had realized she wasn't with them and were about to go looking for her. Her new man, Spider Savage, was leading the search. Mm. Claudine told Nancy other men she dated were not jealous of her abiding fondness for her husband. And despite rumors, she never had romances with Bobby Kennedy. She said that was ridiculous. Steve Payton, who I think was some TV producer, she said he was just a tennis partner. And Ephraim, Ephraim Zimbalist Jr., she said she didn't even know him. The FBI, he was on a show, the FBI. Yeah. But she would be spending Christmas with Andy and their kids, and they would continue to make the Christmas shows together. As for future plans, she told the interviewer, I'd like to do dramatic stuff, but I don't know how to be a performer. I don't really belong in this business because I don't know what I'm doing. I I think she was humble bragging. In April 1975, there was another Hollywood Hotline article penned by Nancy Anderson about the Pro-Am Ski Tournament at Bear Valley, the same event where Claudine had met Spider three years before. Claudine was swimming in the heated pool while a blizzard raged. The ski races had been postponed because of the snow, but the celebrities were living it up. The hosts for the tournament were Lloyd and Dorothy Bridges, Mm. and the tournament was raising money for the Big Brothers. I guess it wasn't Big Brothers and Sisters. It was just Big Brothers. Nancy Anderson wrote, in addition to Claudine, who knows absolutely no fear on the slopes any more than she knows it in a swimming pool during a blizzard, several other Bear Valley race veterans from the movie industry were on the mountain ready to risk a broken leg in the Pro-Am division, among them Lloyd Bridges, of course, his son Jeff, Doug McClure, Clint Eastwood, Jim Brolin, and Tony Bill. Bill Shatner wanted to race, but signed up too late. The item ends with a quote, Claudine Lager's favorite fellow, pro racer Spider Savage, was injured earlier in the season and missed Bear Valley because he was wearing a leg cast. It's not unlikely that Claudine finally got her divorce from Andy because she and Spider planned to marry because her behavior at Bear Valley certainly supported the theory. Though she had her chances, she didn't give another boy more than a polite hello. Yes, in 1975, Claudine Lager and Andy Williams finalized their divorce after five years of separation. And Claudine decided to move to Aspen and live with her boyfriend, Spider Savage. Spider Savage was born Vladimir Savage Jr. on January 10th, 1945 in Kyburs. I think it's Kyburs, California. It's K-Y-B-U-R-Z. It's a very small town. His father, Vladimir Sr., was a high-rate patrolman. Vlad Sr. had been a fighter pilot in World War II and had been shot down over Siberia. He became a patrolman at age 21. Spider's mother was the postmistress of the town, population 100, which was about 25 miles southwest of Lake Tahoe. Spider got his nickname as a baby. He was skinny, jaundiced, with long arms and legs. His dad said he looked like a spider and the name stuck. Hmm. Probably better than the one his younger brother Steve got, which was Pinky. Steve died of melanoma in the early 2000s. Spider also had an older sister, Mary. Mary became a doctor, but died at age 45, about 10 years after Spider's death. She had a brain tumor and was recovering from surgery at her parents' house when she had a seizure in the tub and drowned. Oh. The family lived in a house that Vlad Sr. built himself with the help of a friend and neighbor who was a skier and taught Spider and his pal Jimmy Ellsworth how to ski. 
Growing up in the California mountains, Spider took to skiing at an early age. Vladimir Sr. used to drop the kids off at nearby ski areas in his patrol car. Jimmy Ellsworth once said of Spider, he didn't hesitate. He had God-given coordination. He helped me with my own skiing. The kids attended a one-room schoolhouse that had been a bunkhouse donated by a logging company. It was later replaced by a larger, although not much larger, school. When Spider was in eighth grade, he entered a ski competition sponsored by the Sacramento Bee, which was, is the newspaper in Sacramento, for those of you who don't know. Spider beat out competitors years older than he was, kids in their late teens. Coach Bob Beatty from the University of Colorado Boulder recruited Spider to his school to be a member of the ski team. Bob Beatty was also the coach of the United States Olympic ski team. In college, Spider room with Billy Kidd from Stowe, Vermont, another skier who had ended up professional. Billy said in the Tahoe Quarterly, he was just instantly likable, a typical California kid. Within two minutes, you feel like you've known him for a lifetime. There wasn't any girl around who, from the instant she heard the word hello, didn't want to spend more time with him. Mm. Jimmy Ellsworth said that Spider didn't have any girlfriends in high school because there were hardly any girls around. His graduating class had four people, but Spider made up for it once he got to college and later. But Claudine was the only girl he dated that he ever brought home to meet his family. Spider wasn't just a pretty face. While, as Billy Kidd said, he had the legendary status as a guy who parties all night before a race, barely made it to the course on time and still won. Billy reminded a reporter, it's not like he got lucky in a race or two. He was a legitimate racer. As I said earlier, at 22, Spider came in fifth in the slalom in the Olympics. I hate that word slalom. Me too, yeah. Spider won the World Cup weeks later. It was held at his old stomping grounds, Heavenly Valley in Tahoe. Like I said earlier, Spider won a lot of competitions and as an amateur and more when he turned pro in 1970 when his former coach, Bob Biotti, founded a professional ski league. As one of the people on the Dominic Dunn show, I think it was Spider's brother, Steve, said, Spider didn't win a lot as an amateur, but once he turned pro and had money as a motivator, his skiing got a lot better. Also, amateur athletes who competed in the Olympics and the World Cup and stuff literally could not make money. They couldn't do endorsements. I know. And so money isn't just a motivator. It's a way if, of continuing to do right, it. Right. Because yeah. if you have to train all the time and aren't making any money, then you have to work or find ways to get money that's okay with like the Olympic Committee I and know. stuff. And it's I know. very difficult on your career. It is. And I just wanted to point that out. So so it doesn't make him sound like he was just a money grubber who didn't care. No, I know. And I don't think that's the way his brother met it. But yes, I agree. And like a lot of athletes then and now, he made hundreds of thousands a year on product endorsements. K2 skis, Dodge Aspen cars, Aspen Ski Corporation, and some brand of coffee that I couldn't find. I looked to see if I could find any ads he was in, but Mm. I didn't see any. Robert Redford and author James Salter followed Spider and Billy Kidd around the World Cup circuit and the Olympics in Grenoble. And with director Michael Ritchie collaborated on the movie Downhill Racer, which admittedly I have no desire to see. Tahoe Quarterly said the film proved a breakout role for Redford, earned ample critical acclaim, and remains the most incisive cinematic look at ski racing and the danger, competitive intensity, and glory inherent in the sport, which Savage came to embody. And while I did not watch the movie, the article in GQ mentions a bizarre, quote, coincidence that Robert Redford's character falls in love with, quote, a moody European brunette 
Mm. And the background music is Moon River, Henry Mancini's song that was Andy Williams' signature tune. Now, I see it as a bit of a coincidence, but I don't think Claudine was really moody. No. Um, it depended on who you talk to, and we'll, you'll find out more about her personality later. But Also, I just want to say, you, you could hear Moon River anywhere i know here's a side note about the movie an excerpt from an article in the august 8 1997 edition of the new yorker from writer james salter at dinner one night i remarked that i saw billy kidd as the main character kidd was the dominant skier in the u.s on the u.s team and in the manner of champions was somewhat arrogant and aloof he was tough from a poor part of town i imagined home by years on the icy runs of the east Redford shook his head. The racer he was interested in was at another table over there. I looked golden, unimpressible, a bit like Redford himself, mm. which should have marked him from the first, sat a little known team member named Spider Savage, end quote. By the way, Billy Kidd was not from the port. He was from Stowe. His parents owned a ski hotel in Stowe, Vermont. I I thought that was stupid when I read that. I'm like, he's from Stowe, Vermont. It doesn't mean he's a millionaire. I know. Although there was a physical resemblance, Spider's friends said Robert Redford didn't capture Spider's easygoing and fun personality. In 1973, during a race in Aspen Highlands, Spider crashed and injured his back. He was taking it easy, enjoying his on-off affair with Claudine, who was still in California, and hanging out with his neighbor, John Denver. And from what I heard, drinking a lot and yeah. just fooling around. Denver liked to party. Spider liked to say things like, I'm just a dirtbag. Who am I trying to fool? Aspen was getting a reputation for a druggy hippie town, especially after Hunter S. Thompson, who lived there and died there in 2005, run for sheriff of Pitkin County in 1970, in which he campaigned to change the name of the town to Fat City and put dishonest drug pushers in the stockades in town square. He didn't win, by the way. Mm. And I say Fat City, that's where I live all the time. Yeah, I'm there. Spider was enjoying the party town. He was good looking, rich, and young. Billy Kid said Spider had cars souped up. We raced motorcycles. We lived on the edge. Mm. In a widely distributed Washington Post column, Judy Backrack wrote of Spider I'm never going to grow up, he'd tell a girlfriend. That's my best line, he'd laugh. That gets him every time. Mm. End quote. His roommate and fellow pro skier, Billy Kidd, said he was surprised at the relationship with Claudine. Quote, Spider was not the settling down type. And at that age, he had so many interests. He had an airplane, a house at Aspen, and he loved to travel. I know he loved her, but I don't know if he planned on settling down. He was at the time in a young man's life when thoughts usually aren't for settling down, more for traveling the world and living life to the fullest, end Mm -hmm. quote. By many accounts, Spider's luxury chalet house had a waterbed in the living room, although I couldn't find any photos of it, and a built-in sauna, and was reportedly a party house, as I said, in a party town. Then I read something later that there wasn't much furniture in the house, and he had an extra waterbed, so we put it in the living room. Mm -hmm. Claudine was not just some hanger-on groupie. She was slightly famous and beautiful and sophisticated. One of Spider's friends, John Lilstrom, who was from Aspen, he was like a ski. Everyone worked in the ski industry that they talked to. Jim Lilstrom, sorry, said on the Power and Privilege show, everyone said, oh my God, that woman put off heat. So she was apparently pretty sexy in person. In 1975, Claudine and her children moved from Malibu to Aspen to live with Spider. Claudine felt Aspen would be a better environment for the kids. And later she does say that Spider asked her to move in with her. Claudine told People Magazine, 
that she and the kids liked their new life in Aspen. It was quite the change from the life they led in Malibu. Quote, suddenly we began to depend on each other. Noelle and I became closer friends and all of us chipped in to do things together, like cutting down our own Christmas tree in the woods. That's quite a chore, especially when NBC always gave us a tree in previous years. One time he, meaning Spider, had all of us out front of the house planting seeds and carrying manure to fertilize them. There's no way Andy would carry manure or roll <laughs> around in the mud. The children love and cherish Andy, but they could tag along in things with Spider. Andy Williams said, he told this to People Magazine as well, she loved Spider and that was good enough for me. I'm sure he was a really first-rate fellow. According to Claudine, he was just wonderful with the kids. He used to take Christian on two-day hiking trips, something I never did, end quote. However, the couple had some pretty public quarrels, one in which Claudine threw a wine glass at Spider in a bar, and another where she pulled a chair out from under him. Some friends said people took incidents like that too seriously, but others thought it was a sign of tension. Marty Maines, a former girlfriend of Spider's who later married his brother Steve, didn't seem to like Claudine. She'd met Spider in college and had moved to Aspen in the late 60s. She told California Conversations that when she moved to Aspen, there were about 500 residents, quote, there was a hitching post outside the liquor store. The town kept getting bigger and bigger and the homes kept getting bigger and the people kept getting snottier and snottier. And all of a sudden it became like living on Rodeo Drive. All of a sudden the general store is gone. When asked if Spider and Claudine were a celebrity couple, Marty said, I guess so. And called Claudine's music her stupid little albums. Uh, she, I think she was jealous whether or not yeah, um, she like wants it. to admit it. She did concede that Spider loved Claudine but said I was living half the year in Hawaii and half in Aspen I remember running into him and he asked me if I wanted to have dinner that's when he told me he could not get rid of her and that she was throwing tantrums end quote it was March 21 1976 late afternoon or early evening on a Sunday Sheriff's Deputy William Baldridge was called to the Starwood development to Spider's home supposedly the head of security said to the deputy about claudine watch it this gal is a little ringy today and i have no idea what that mm. r-i-n-g-y ringy maybe just she's just freaking out yeah uh spider was on the bathroom floor there wasn't a lot of blood but he had one bullet wound in the, his abdomen one person who was there said claudine was on the verge of hysteria but was able to do some things calmly when asked the emergency medical crew loaded the unconscious spider into an ambulance. Claudine got him with him. One of the EMTs asked Claudine to help with chest compressions, which she did. As the ambulance made its way to the hospital, a deputy who was riding in the front seat pointed to the back where Claudine was attending spider and said to the driver, she doesn't know it yet, but she's under arrest. Spider was dead on arrival. He apparently bled to death internally. A massive hemorrhage was what the coroner's report said the next day. The same deputy said that at the hospital, Claudine said, I shot Spider. It was an accident. I didn't mean to do it. Police searched the home while Claudine and Spider were at the hospital. They took the gun and Claudine's journal, which they said was sitting on top of the dresser. A few weeks later, Claudine was charged with reckless manslaughter. Frank Tucker was the district attorney during the Spider Sabbath affair. His wife had left him to move back to Washington, D.C., three days after Claudine being charged. Frank went to the University of Colorado, like Spider, and was a couple years ahead of him. He was friends with Spider. Frank said he was too young to die. He was just too young. Mm. Frank told the Washington Post, I never handled a shooting that didn't include friends or a loved one. We tend to shoot our friends and acquaintances. We don't shoot strangers. 
Mm-hmm. People in Aspen were pissed at Frank Tucker for not charging Claudine with murder. But he said he did not have the evidence to charge Claudine with murder. And quote, murder connotes a state of mind, which I don't think we have, end quote. But years later, on an episode of E! True Hollywood Story that aired in 2000, Frank Tucker said, I knew immediately what happened. She was mad about something and plugged Spider. Frank said Claudine thought, quote, I'm not going to lose another man. He said Hmm. she wasn't going to have another man walk out on her, which I'm pretty sure that no one did walk out on her. No. Which is so stupid. Also, not the greatest investigative practice to quote, know immediately what happened before you have the facts. Also, a guy who's obviously in the midst of if his wife left him, he's not feeling great about women, I'm sure. Oh, shit. To begin with. But this, I mean, and this was 24 years later. And he was a friend of spiders. Yeah. At some point in the presence of a female officer, according to the newspaper, but not in the presence of her lawyer, Claudine supposedly said, I killed him, (laughs) which is not untrue, but you know, doesn't mean she's confessing to murder. In a deposition, Claudine's oldest child, Noel, said her younger brothers were out sledding at the time of the shooting. Noel heard Spider yell Claudine several times. And when Noel came to see what was going on, she found her mother calling the hospital. Noel told police her mother and Spider were not arguing before the shooting. The day after the shooting, Claudine was arrested and released on a $5,000 personal recognizance bond. It was predicted she would be charged with criminally negligent homicide. Claudine didn't go to Spider's funeral, but she did attend the memorial, much to the chagrin of the Spider camp. And I think the memorial was like a week later. One friend of Spider's told the, <laughs> told the Washington Post, her behavior has been disgusting since he died. She walked from the back of the crowd to the front and center. I was dismayed to see Claudine pick a daisy from the flowers under his picture. She's acting as though nothing has happened. And you know what? You know what? This is Spider's town, not hers. She doesn't belong here. Spider did. Newspapers the next day ran a photo of Claudine looking sad, dressed in black, holding a single daisy. After being released on bond, Claudine headed for Palm Springs for a few weeks. Obviously, she wants to get out of town. I don't blame her. Mm. Claudine was charged on April 8, 1976 at Pitkin County Court with felony manslaughter. Andy Williams accompanied Claudine to court. This is what I remember. I remember Andy Williams. Yeah, I remember being with that. The, the maximum sentence was 10 years. She was still being held on the $5,000 bond and was going to have a preliminary hearing on June 8th. DA Frank Tucker said that she feloniously, recklessly, and willfully caused the death of Savage, which is the way the law is worded. The DA wanted Claudine's bond increase, quote, to a sum more suitable to the charges. But Judge George Lohr said no. Newspapers reported erroneously that Spider had just that day ordered Claudine out of the house. They quoted a friend of Spider's who said Claudine was supposed to be moving out April 1st. It was sort of a deadline. I just don't think he was as interested in the relationship as he had been before and they were breaking up, end quote. Her diary reportedly mentioned the date of the moving out as well. Frank Tucker said of the journal that it was an interesting piece of evidence. People in Aspen talked of little else in the days and weeks after the shooting. Claudine was cast as the villain for many of them. Greg Lewis, who worked as a publicist for the Worldwide Skiing Corporation, had some theories of behind the animosity. He told the United Press International that there was a culture of reverse snobbery in Aspen. Aspenites prided themselves on not being starstruck by the local celebrities like John Denver, Jill St. John, <laughs> and Leon Uris. Ah. 
I don't think I'd even know who Leon Uris was if he was walking down the street. Well, he might have back then. Back then, maybe. I don't know. Jill St. John, I probably would. I can picture him in my head. Quote, and a lot of the talk is because it is very popular here to have that position. And by taking that position, it means you knew and loved Spider, which means he knew and loved you. And by putting her down, it's a way to vindicate Spider's death because he was a popular person. I personally was ambivalent about her, but other people thought she was a little petulant and a bit snobby. People were jealous because she was so glamorous, of course, and sometimes it was hard because she wanted to be just an Aspenite, and at the same time, she wanted to retain that star characteristic, end quote. Merrill's Collins was a promoter for the local TV station. She knew Claudine and Spider from working with them on fundraising projects. She told UPI, I think the people who don't like Claudine are a small percentage of the people that knew them, but they didn't like her for some reason, end quote. Merrill's had heard gossip about the motive around town. He had a date that night, and I guess they just started arguing about whether he would go, end quote. And this is me here. I don't think that's true. He was going to go back to Bob Biotti's house. He had been there earlier. I was going to have dinner with him. And Bob Biotti was on Claudine's side. He told the UPI, I have only extreme compassion for her. There is no bitterness among his close friends against her, and most people simply feel compassion for her. The April 24th episode of Saturday Night Live had a skit called the Claudine Langer Invitational. <laughs> Chevy Chase and Jane Curtin are the TV hosts, as basically a bunch of film of skiers wiping out, and each time one of them wipes out Jane or Chevy says, oh no, it looks like Claudine Langer has accidentally shot him. The producers issued an apology the following week. <laughs> it might have been funny at the time, but when I rewatched it, I was like, okay, it's yeah. just like a lot of their skits. It just, there's yeah, no they end fall to flat. it. Claudine told People Magazine that after the shooting and charging, she was trying to get over her grief. She said, I started taking long walks, maybe an hour or two every day. Then on one of those walks, I noticed the grass was growing and I was glad it was spring. At the end of May 1976, Claudine's lawyers asked that her diary and the blood test police took after the shooting be suppressed as evidence. The motion said that Claudine's right to privacy was violated since the police took the diary and gave her a blood test without the proper warrants. Meanwhile, newspapers reporting that the blood and urine showed traces of cocaine. The source was somebody close to the investigation, hmm. as they say. The source also told the Associated Press the cocaine business is going to be a factor, end quote, in the case. My guess is that the source is D.A. Frank Tucker, but maybe it's just because I don't like him. At her June 8th appearance, Pitkin County District Court Judge George Lohr ruled that the diary was inadmissible. However, it had already been widely reported that the diary can contained entries about her troubled relationship with Spider and how angry she was to be moving out. At least one police officer supposedly took it home to read it in full. The blood and urine tests were also ruled inadmissible. After the hearing, Frank Tucker complained about the judge's decision to close the beginning of the hearing to the public, but then open up the court when it was time for Claudine to enter a plea. D.A. Tucker told the AP, because of the action, meaning closing the hearing, reporters and the public will have to rely on attorneys for interpretation. That leads to bigger abuse because attorneys can manipulate public sentiment. Why should one person who is able to hire a glib guy because she's famous and wealthy, why should she be able to avoid the eye of public scrutiny? The preliminary hearing lasted six hours and took place behind closed doors by order of Judge Lore. Judge Lore also imposed a gag order on the hearing and had the transcript sealed until the matter's conclusion. Judge Lore ruled that there was probable cause to to try Claudine. Her trial date was set for August 30th, 1976. Claudine pled not guilty to the charge of manslaughter. 
Charles Weedman, Claudine's attorney from Los Angeles, told the AP, the evidence today showed quite clearly that Claudine was concerned about the safety of her children inasmuch as Spider was going on a business trip the following day to Las Vegas. Attorney Weedman said that Claudine had asked Spider to show her how to use the gun, a 22 caliber pistol, and Spider allegedly told her the safety was on and the gun would not fire. Charles said, we have since learned from ballistic experts that the safety on the gun was completely inoperative. The gun would have fired in either position of safety. Frank Tucker said that was bullshit. Even if the safety wasn't working, quote, you have to fire the gun, meaning you have to pull the trigger to make it fire. In a July hearing for another motion to suppress evidence, Claudine testified that she and Spider had agreed to separate about a month before the shooting, but the UPI reported she didn't give a reason in court. Claudine's lawyer said the search of Spider and Claudine's house was illegal because the warrant had not been signed by a judge. So not only should her diary be thrown out as evidence with her blood and urine test, but also any statements she made to investigators without, you know lawyers. Right. Ron Austin, Claudine's Colorado attorney, said her diary had been taken out of a drawer by Sheriff's Lieutenant Bill Baldridge and put on top of the dresser. Then it became, quote, plain view, which was a provision in the search warrant. They could only take plain view right. evidence. Also, Claudine's defense argued Baldridge was the only police who smelled alcohol on Claudine's breath. And smelling alcohol gave the police probable cause to test someone's blood and urine. And just a tip... Anytime they stop you for suspicion of drunk driving, they smell alcohol. Every time. Mm-hmm. They're oh, always yeah. going to say they smelled alcohol on your breath. I used to work for a lawyer and they always say, oh, I smelled alcohol. So better not drive, even if you have one drink. Claudine told the court she moved to Aspen the previous year because, quote, Spider asked me to come live with him. As for the location of the diary, Claudine testified, I'd never leave it there. The book was in my top drawer. It wasn't on my dresser. I'm saying that is impossible. Um, Power, Privilege, and Justice show produced in 2006, the DA investigator Mike Fisher said that the diary had been on top of the dresser. It wasn't in the first set of photos the crime scene investigators took because one of the cops was looking at it. And then it was put back on the dresser where it had been. So it was in the second set of photos. And it doesn't work that way. You take the photos before disturbing the scene. Right. So fuck you. Right. It's bullshit. Morons. Roy Griffith was a security guard at Starwood and the first to arrive on the scene. He testified that Claudine opened the front door and said, I shot Spider. Help him. Help him. Claudine's trial was not in August as originally planned. Jury selection didn't begin until January 1977. Andy Williams was in court that first day as the AP reported, I'm really just here to lend support at the first and to be with my kids said williams sitting in the third row of the courtroom judge lore told the 75 potential jurors that claudine was being charged with unlawfully feloniously and recklessly killing spider savage but lore reminded the jurors that this was only an accusation therefore the burden is on the people to prove the charge within a shadow of a doubt a friend of spiders told gq magazine people were queuing up to volunteer they couldn't wait to spill their guts Among those excused were two attorneys, Anthony Mazzi, who said he was a personal friend of Mr. Savage. I represent Mr. Savage's estate. And J.D. or Joe Dog Muller, who was excused simply because he was a lawyer. Andy Williams told the press he would be going back to L.A. in a few days, but would be back when the trial started. He said Claudine feels pretty certain she's going to be all right. Claudine stayed with friends after the shooting, including neighbor John Denver. She had since bought a house in Aspen. There would be at least three days of jury selection with a group of 75 potential jurors each day. 
The second day of jury selection, at least two jurors were excused because they said they believed Claudine was guilty. The AP article said the 35-year-old Miss Langer was tense and tight-lipped as she stared directly at the prospective jurors while each was questioned individually. Are you working on the presumption of her guilt? Asked Deputy District Attorney Ashley Anderson of a young frizzy-haired photographer. I don't like to admit that, but I guess it's true, said Bruce Yaffo. He said he had learned details of the case from Steve Savage, brother of the victims. Moments later, the next prospect called to the jury box. A young woman in her 20s declared, From all that I've read in my involvement in this, I already have an opinion. That's not fair to Miss Langer. It's not fair to the court. The woman, Robin Grasher, said she would require the defense to prove Miss Langer's innocence rather than the legal requirement that the burden of proof rests with the prosecution. Both prospects were excused for prejudice, end quote. Aspen Mayor Stacy Stanley was called, but he said, I felt the defendant was guilty based on the information I had received from a police officer. Prosecutor Frank Tucker told the AP, people are very frank in this community. They don't beat around the bush. Tucker told the AP he might call Andy Williams as a witness, but wouldn't say why. He also said he might call Noelle, the now 13-year-old daughter of Andy and Claudine. Neither of them ended up testifying. The third day of jury selection, Claudine told the AP, to me, this is all total despair. But she didn't hold anything against those who thought she was guilty. I appreciate their honesty. One potential juror, broadcasting executive Revel Fox, told the court, I have to be candid. This is not based on fact or fiction. There is a gut feeling. I just hope that Mrs. Williams, as the mother of three children, is found not guilty. I'm a very strong family man. Claudine said of Revel's statement, it was the first sign of compassion that I've heard here. She told reporters outside the court she was buoyed by those people who come to me in the town and say, we're with you. I've gotten a tremendous amount of support on the street. On the third day, 12 people were tentatively seated, but it turned out a couple got rejected and the voir dire dragged on. Patricia Brucato told the court, I have been crying and throwing up since she'd been selected. It's the magnitude of this case in particular. I feel it would be too emotionally difficult to participate. I wasn't aware of this until last night. David Lee Wright, who worked in the ski industry, said he knew Spider as much as he was my next door neighbor. He said he felt Claudine was guilty because of, quote, gossip. (laughs) Outside the court after the fourth day, a friend of Claudine's handed her an anonymous note that read, Be brave. There are many with compassion. Revel Fox, the family man, had been tentatively chosen, but he was re-examined after he wrote a letter to the judge that said in part, I have a very strong feeling about the family relationship. I don't want to be part of a program or jury decision that affects a person with children behind the scenes. He was rejected, causing Claudine to cry in court. Jurors who were selected, according to the UPI, also had opinions on the case. John Gendron, a truck driver, said, I thought they'd have a lover's quarrel and she shot him. If you're holding a weapon and that weapon causes death, you are responsible. Jonathan Gardner, a restaurant worker, said, I have been influenced a lot by the media and a lot of talk. It seems like it has already been decided for a lot of people. John Erspartner, a ski patrolman picked as an alternate, told the court, I asked him, meaning Spider, if he would judge a wet t-shirt contest, and he said, no, I would have to get a divorce. I just thought he would have trouble getting out that night. I told him to bring his lady, but he said he wouldn't have any fun that way. Uh 
One thing I don't understand and I didn't see mentioned anywhere in all my research was why Claudine's lawyers did not try to seek a change of venue. They must have because the guy from LA was a really well-known lawyer. So was the guy, Ron Austin. It wasn't mentioned in anything, but Aspen's like 5,000 people. Yeah. Everyone knew everybody. And also he was such a big star there. I just don't understand it, but there was no mention of it. So I don't know. People were driving around town with bumper stickers that said, it's all Claudine's fault. Give me a break. Right. For a jury to convict on a reckless manslaughter charge, the prosecution has to prove that the defendant consciously disregarded a substantial and unjustifiable risk that their actions could result in death. The maximum sentence would have been 10 years. Claudine took the stand in her own defense. She testified that she was holding the gun, an imitation Luger that Spider's dad brought home from Germany as a souvenir from World War II, and asked Spider to tell her what the safety means. The gun went off and Spider fell, unquote, called my name three times, unquote, before becoming unconscious. The prosecution said that Spider couldn't have been showing Claudine how to use the gun if she'd fired at him from a, the distance, the ballistics expert said. And the bullet entered his back, the prosecution argued, I never got clear information about whether it did or not. They kept saying it an abdominal wound. And the only person that said it went through his back was the prosecution. So if you listen to what she said, he wasn't really giving her a lesson. She was asking him stuff. And right. I'll talk she more about it later. She could have been standing several feet away and said, I'll, so I'll talk what's about the safety? Okay. I talk about yeah. it later. Right. Mike Fisher, the DA investigator, questioned on the 2006 show why Claudine felt she needed a gun. Her house was safe. This is in response to one of the defense claims that she had asked Spider to show her how to use a gun because she was worried that he was leaving the next day and she'd be alone in the house. I find it ironic that in a state like Colorado, with a gun culture that suddenly someone is questioning someone else's need for a mm. gun yeah like oh why would she need a gun oh really if lots of people who don't need a gun still i know have that's what and they, they go on about how it's everybody was comfortable with guns and she should have known what she was doing right and, but and now he's saying oh well, yeah i know right one of the cops on the same show wanted to know why spider chose at that moment in the bathroom to give claudine a gun listen but as i said if they actually listened to what she said happened they wouldn't be questioning because he wasn't standing there giving a gun lesson and we'll talk about it more right andy williams testified for the defense on his way up to the stand he told the courtroom artist to quote make it good about his picture mm. the reporter for the aspen times described andy williams demeanor as easy glibness combined with a touch of testiness and sarcasm a neighbor of spiders and claudine's <laughs> peter green testified that andy told him the morning after the shooting that claudine was a crazy type of gal that liked to ski fast drive fast and take chances i doubt andy williams would have said anything of the kind to someone he hardly knew mm. not surprisingly andy testified that he never made that comment when defense attorney weedman asked peter green if claudine was part of the starwood carpool peter green answered she was in the beginning but we got very concerned about the safety of my kids in her car peter green's wife uh no first name as usual called claudine a crazy chick one cop said claudine told him she jokingly pointed the gun at spider and said bang bang and another cop said she did that and said boom boom claudine denied that on the stand the police also testified that claudine told them she knew the safety was off which she denied telling them ballistics expert llama martin testified that the gun had a lot of oil and grease in its workings and it could have gone off without someone pulling the trigger although he had to admit on the stand this never happened when forensic tests were performed on it a ballistic expert for the prosecution said the gun was jammed so claudine wasn't able to fire more than one shot or she and then da tucker said that's why she didn't shoot him more than once because she couldn't 
because it jammed. But Mm. since the gun was tampered with by cops, which I'll talk about later, it wouldn't have been possible to prove it was jammed from her firing it. While Claudine had a team of two lawyers, as I said, Charles Weedman from L.A. and Ron Austin from Colorado, the prosecution's case was tried by Deputy District Attorney Ashley Anderson. Ashley Anderson wore jeans to court and, according to the Aspen Times account, lolled in his chair, making only the smallest of efforts to rise to his feet when required to do so, which is... You know, I do that most of the time. (laughs) I loll in my chair. The prosecution's closing argument was 22 minutes long. ADA Anderson told the jury, there's no way the gun went off accidentally. There were no vibrations. You had to pull the trigger. The bullet comes out. When the bullet comes out, you kill someone. The defense closing argument was more than 90 minutes. In his closing argument, defense attorney Weedman said, this is not an inanimate object over there. This is a woman who is living, breathing, and suffering. Mentally hold her hand and ask yourselves, guilty or not guilty? As the jury deliberated, Deputy D.A. Anderson drank beer with reporters down the street at a hotel bar and reportedly said more than once, I think they'll walk her. They thought I was a dumb tuna. He's talking about the jury. Right. Acquitting. Judge George Lohr told the, the jury of seven men and nine women that they could find Claudine guilty of the misdemeanor of criminally negligent homicide instead of manslaughter. To find her guilty of that crime, it meant they felt Claudine had shown, quote, a gross deviation from the standard of caution that a reasonable person would be expected to exercise. One juror reported that in the jury room, the first vote was split in three, four for reckless manslaughter, four to acquit, and four undecided. After five and a half hours, the jury found Claudine guilty of criminally negligent homicide. And I think that a lot of lawyers would tell you if if there's a case that's iffy and they're given something that's a compromise, they'll probably pick that. Yes. Outside the court after the verdict, Claudine said, I saw this film clip of her several times and I can picture her saying it with a French accent, but Mm -hmm. there is not much to say, only that I have too much respect and love for living things to be guilty of that crime. I am not guilty. Andy Williams said, I'm very disappointed. I expected her to be acquitted. Ron Austin, the Colorado lawyer, told the press, I do not think the average person would even have been charged in this case. And Charles Weedman, the L.A. lawyer, said the evil in this town was the gossip about Spider and Claudine. For all of this, there should be some shame in this community. But he's an outsider, too. So mm-hmm. Ashley Anderson didn't think Judge Lore was going to impose the maximum sentence of two years. He said in similar cases, Judge Lore usually gave 30 to 60 days. Anderson told the UPI, I would have been disappointed if she hadn't been convicted of something. I'm very pleased. Other people would have to serve a jail term, and I would I would assume he would do the same in her case. I would assume she would not be treated any differently. Juror Daniel DeWolf, a 27-year-old grocery worker, told the AP, by no means is she the type of person who should be in jail. I don't think she's a threat to society. Daniel also said he thought the trial was a waste of money, and he didn't think Claudine would have been charged if she hadn't been a celebrity. At the end of January 1977, Claudine was sentenced to 30 days in jail. Before the verdict, her lawyers said that they would be appealing if she were sentenced to any jail. Then they said they'd appeal if she were sentenced to consecutive days. But in the end, the judge sentenced her to 30 consecutive days in the county jail 
to be served when it was convenient for her, but the sentence had to end before September 1st. She was also sentenced to two years probation and $25 the cost of a probation report. Claudine told the press she would stay in Aspen after she served her sentence. At her sentencing hearing, Claudine asked the judge to just give her probation for the sake of her children. She told the press her children were in school and she would break the news to them when she saw them later that day. She told the court, my children and I are very close and they firmly believe in my innocence. I wonder what they would think if a system they believe in sends me to prison. They are beautiful. They are happy. They are open and gentle. And with all my heart, I would like them to stay that way. Mm. Andy Williams was crying in the back of the courtroom as Claudine made this statement. A lot of Aspenites were not pleased. Filmmaker Marty Stouffer spent the day in jail because he didn't show up for Vordaer when called as a potential juror. His reason is that he thought the trial was a circus. He told reporters, if that bitch gets off with 30 days, I should get five minutes. To which I say, what a moron. All he had to do was go to court and tell them what he thought of her and he would have been excluded. That's right. And he wouldn't have been in jail for a day. Exactly. On an episode of E! True Hollywood Story that aired in 2000, D.A. Frank Tucker complained about not being able to use the diary because, quote, it obviously proved intent. To which I say, no, it didn't unless she said... I'm going to kill Spider for kicking me out with his own gun. It doesn't prove anything. And though only those who read it know what it said, I'm sure that wasn't what she said. Tucker also complained about Claudine being a celebrity, saying that's why she got a light sentence. Quote, when a celebrity comes in the courtroom, justice goes out the window. But for the misdemeanor that she ended up being convicted, that was an appropriate sentence. And also a side note, it's mentioned in a couple articles and I did see a picture. For some reason, the little justice statue in front of their courthouse in Aspen doesn't have a blindfold on. In the spring of 1977, national consultants deemed the Pitkin County Jail one of the worst they'd ever assessed as far as living conditions. So on April 18th, when Claudine started her sentence and she asked if she could paint her cell, Sheriff Dick Kinest let her. She painted it bright blue and yellow. When that news got out, people were pissed. There were rumors that food was ordered in for Claudine to eat from upscale restaurants. Rumors that were not true, but people still to this day believe them. Bob Broadus was a deputy when Claudine was jailed and later became sheriff. His takeaway from the Langer case was that the jail conditions needed to be improved and the lack of professional standards and crappy investigating by the sheriff's department needed to stop, which is... Very plausible because one of the deputies on one of the TV shows, I think it was that PP and J, I'll just call it that Dominic Mm. Dunn show tells how another deputy took the cartridge out of the gun, then put it back in, then wrapped the gun in a handkerchief. And it was in the glove box of one of the sheriff's cars for days and no one knew where it was. Yet Frank Tucker questions why Claudine was put in the county jail saying it was like the Mayberry jail. 30 days sentence. That's Mm. why she was in jail, dumbass. Right. The sheriff, Bob Broadus, said his first priority was to uphold investigative standards and also make sure the rich and famous, of which there were many in Aspen, didn't get treated any differently than the less fortunate. Sheriff Broadus told GQ, I wanted to eliminate the idea of them and us. If an alien landed and asked what commodity I provided as a sheriff, I would answer safety, meaning safety for everybody, not just the rich and famous. He was sheriff of Pitkin County for 25 years and was well known for his success in improving his department. In the fictional TV show, Reno 911, (laughs) some of the deputies wish they could go work for him. Sheriff Broadus said there was nothing wrong with Claudine being allowed to paint her cell. The jail was admittedly in horrible condition at the time, and one of his first priorities when he was elected sheriff was fixing that issue. As he told GQ, I rebuilt the jail. I designed and staffed it and 
such a way that if your mother had to spend 90 days there, she could do so in safety. Every institution I visited when I was redesigning the jail had steel furniture. I picked wooden beds and tables, just like I have at home. My critics said the inmates would carve initials into it and build bonfires. In 25 years, that never happened. Months after her sentencing, but before she served her sentence, Claudine's Colorado attorney, Ron Austin, left his wife and family to move in with his client. Ooh, that caused Mm -hmm. some some gossip. As I said before, Claudine started her term mid-April of 1977. She appealed to the court to let her out 10 days early for Mother's Day, but her appeal was denied. On May 19th, she was released from jail. She told reporters, I would like to say again that I'm not guilty and should not have been in jail. Meeting her at the jail were Andy Williams, her sister Danielle, and her two older children. When asked how she would celebrate, she said, it's not an occasion for celebration. A lot of people were surprised when Claudine decided to stay in Aspen, but she still had her supporters. On the 2003 A&E biography show about Andy Williams, Claudine said, to this day, people stop me on the street and say how much they love the Christmas show. Before she knew her fate, she told reporters she would stay in Aspen regardless of the outcome of the trial. Quote, because of the cards and letters I've received and the prayers, I feel very good about everybody. I feel good about Aspen. People are very warm and sensitive. I realize people are very beautiful. She bought a Victorian home in Aspen. She said in People Magazine, fortunately, because of my financial position, I don't have to tolerate a boss or someone who is unpleasant. She taught French twice a week at a local primary school. She said, the love of my children and Andy's help were the only things that kept me going. Andy Williams told People Magazine, I said to her, Jesus, let's get out of here. She said, no, that's not my name. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) She said, no, I want to stay. This is where I'm going to raise my children. She made them go back to school the next day. The people in town feel like it takes a lot of guts and proves she isn't running away. But there are those who didn't forgive her, like Spider's friend Carol Fuller, who hired a truck to dump a load of cow manure in Claudine's car, then poured wood stain over the roof. Jesus Christ. Carol turned herself into police. She said she was frustrated that Claudine only served one month, the same amount of time a drunk driver would serve. Carol got two years probation. Interestingly, the same amount of probation time Claudine got. Also, I couldn't find out much about this incident, but I'm wondering, she must have had a convertible, because how else would you get? yeah to remember a two-tone oh no wait that was (laughs) that was was early another aspen resident told gq for years she meaning claudine used to avoid going to the old haunts in aspen there were stories of waitresses spilling drinks in her lap someone else said i wouldn't have liked the idea of tasting her soup at a lot of the restaurants in aspen Andy Williams said the whole incident got really out of hand. It became an international thing. It was in the news all the time. It was an accident. I believe it was an accident. The jury believed it was an accident. The Savage family filed either a $780,000 or $1.2 million, depending on the source, civil suit against Claudine in which they said she acted with malice, insult, and wanton and reckless disregard for his spiders writes claudine said to people magazine i'm very sad that the family would have so much hatred for me and that they would gear all their energy and emotion toward hurting me more deeply than i have been the suit was settled out of court one of the conditions was that she never speak publicly about spider or his death 
Claudine's diary was returned to her after her release from jail, and reportedly she burned it. Bob Beatty, Spider's former coach and mentor, said of Spider, Spider was a bit of a wild man in those days. I was his educator as well as his coach. I loved every minute of it. He never did let his fame go to his head. He could talk to anyone from anywhere in the world, and he did. Beatty's theory was that Claudine was trying to frighten Spider and didn't intend for the gun to fire. Claudine never fit into clicky Aspen, even though her boyfriend was one of the most most famous and admired residents. He was a rock star and she was his Yoko Ono. Mm. No offense to Yoko, but you know what I mean? Those who knew Spider say that he loved Claudine, but as one friend said, he loved ladies. He loved ladies. He wasn't going to confine himself to just her. Mm. A former girlfriend said that Spider told her, I'm too young. She has three children and I'm not a family man. At the time of Spider's death, he knew his professional career was probably over. His back injury was bothering him. And Bob Beatty said, I think he had seven broken legs. And he was only 31. So the last year of his life, Spider only made $800 from skiing. A real estate agent who knew Spider said that Spider had given Claudine until April 1st to move out of his house. The agent told the Washington Post, he told me he was torn. I think he felt bad about it for the kids. He said, it doesn't work, but I don't want to hurt her either. I want to do it gracefully. Two weeks before the shooting, she came to me looking for a place to rent. But after Spider's death, Claudine called the same real estate agent asking him to help her find a home to buy. He wrote her a letter that said, given the circumstances, I don't have the interest to help you. The day of the shooting, Spider skied on Buttermilk Mountain down the hardest trail, Tie Hack. Then he went over to Bobby Eddy's house for a small party where he drank beer. A friend who was at the wine and cheese party said, I remember sitting around with Beatty and Spider and they were saying, we're going to be good old boys. And you know what makes us good old boys, don't you? Because we'll all be sitting around when we're 80 or something and somebody will ask us questions and we'll have more stories to tell them than anybody. Spider was very laid back and mellow the day I saw him. He left about 4 or 4.30. The day before the shooting, Claudine played tennis with friends at the Aspen Racquet Club. The manager, Michael Levi, said in a UPI article, she seemed happy and smiling. There didn't seem to be anything out of the ordinary. Michael Levi said that Claudine and Spider were just a normal couple. They seemed to get along well. She was always smiling. She's a very friendly person and just gets along well with everybody. Claudine skied that day as well. She skied down Ajax Mountain and then met friends for a glass of white wine at Little Nell's Bar at the foot of the mountain. Then she went shopping. I think Claudine got home after Spider, from what I've read. According to Claudine's testimony, she was picking up Spider's clothes, which he left on the floor a lot. She was straightening up. She picked up a sweater, folded it, and was putting it back in the closet when she found the imitation Luger hidden between some of the sweaters in the stack. She took it out and the cartridge fell out and she wasn't sure she put it back together right. Spider was just getting out of the shower, so she went in the bathroom to ask him if the gun was in danger of firing. She asked him if she had the safety on it. He described what it should look like. And she said, yeah. And he confirmed that it was on and said, you've got it. Claudine told the court she was holding the gun in two hands and it fired once. According to the prosecutor, Claudine was drinking heavily and driving erratically that day, looking everywhere for Spider around town, which sounds like bullshit because they were both just going back home to the house. Right. It wasn't like she didn't know where he was. She went home and he was home and they sound like a regular Sunday afternoon. It it sounds like a lot of the prosecutor's evidence is just speculation. It is. Nothing, not even his own feeling about what type of person she was. And Uh, also his own feeling about how women act, women who are crazed about a man act. I know. know. The prosecution also said the evidence shows that Spider was bending over the sink 
with his back to Claudine when he was shot, which doesn't really contradict her story because he could have been shaving or squeezing a zit in the mirror or whatever while or just talking to her. Yeah, or maybe he turned to spit in the sink or well, something. Well, you know? Marty, mean- Marty Maines said that Spider had a toothbrush in his mouth when they found him, but I haven't read that anywhere else, so I don't mm. know. Marty also said, you know, in order to kill him, she had to climb on a chair, get underneath Spider's sweaters, grab the gun, put a bullet in the chamber, go into the bathroom and kill him. Which is really not how, I don't know if that's how it happened. Billy Kidd said, we all miss Spider. He was one of the most charismatic and fun people ever to be on the planet. A friend of Spider's told the Washington Post, Spider left nothing behind. Spider said everything that should or should not have been said at the time. He never tried to fool you. Claudine told People Magazine, the four years with Spider were the happiest and richest of my life. We probably were everything that a man and a woman should be to each other. He was my best friend. If I left, I'd be running away and taking my hurt somewhere else. I love this town and I'm part of it. Aspen is where I want to raise my children. If somebody called me a whore and a terrible person, I would not break. Our house is not a sad house. I keep my hurt inside. I take one day at a time. I don't want to work again, she meant in show business that is behind me now i want to ride horses and get a farm and raise chickens and ducks i change according to where i am and who i'm with i love to go to premieres with andy dressed in a gown i would imagine i was a princess and then giggle about how just three days before i was rolling around in the mud in aspen spider and i were really pals when we were together there was constant laughter and adventure He taught me how to fly, explore, laugh, and play. Billy Kidd said, that was the main thing about Spider. He really lived life well. You know, some people who have everything, whether it's money or opportunity, and yet they are not happy. Spider, when he had everything or when he had nothing, he was still happy. He lived life to the fullest. It was one of the reasons he was so much fun to hang around with. One thing that everyone who knew Spider said was that, this is me now, was that he was a fun person, never mean-spirited, always full of good stories, and people just wanted to be around. From what I, everything I read, he was very, very magnetic. And he was a nice guy and just one of those people that was always the center of everything. Spider himself once said, I'm not really sure what this means, but uh, (laughs) it's an interesting quote, peace to the world. I'm treading lightly and carrying a small stick. So that is my story. Well, I think it's interesting that so much of the case against her is just speculation based on misogyny. Yeah, he was a golden boy. And he wasn't, I'm not saying he was a jerk. He sounds like he was a great person. No, it sounds like, but he was having fun. And But what I'm going to say is the story about her finding the gun is the one I can picture the most. Like you find the gun, he's in the bathroom, you walk over there with the gun, say, Hey, blah, blah, blah. And he's yeah, yeah, blah, blah, blah. But he's doing his stuff in the bathroom. You know, people often I find when they're speculating and trying to use that as evidence rather than actually having evidence, have a very rigid view of how a conversation would have had to take place. There's only one way to have the conversation. Like, take any situation interaction you've had with somebody today. Think of how it could be misconstrued. Anything can because be. Because you don't act in these, like, black and white, rigid... There's no. not one way to say to somebody, how do you make sure the safety's set on the scut? There's not one way to have that conversation. There's a zillion ways. And I'm not saying that she wouldn't have been charged if she hadn't been a celebrity, because it all depends on prosecutors. Some and I think it wanna... depends on who she killed. But if, she, it... if they were just some dirtbag couple that lived in a 
in a shack in the mountain and and that happened well, you don't I don't know. Think she, it, it depends know. it all depends on the cops and the prosecutor if they want to go through the pain in the ass it's going to go through to prove that somebody deliberately shot somebody but it sounds like there's literally no evidence that anything was so. going on where she would shoot him that i think they drank a lot and were out in public a lot although that like the the glass throwing right. incident one of his friends said yeah she threw a glass at him once but he well as we've talked she about was many times, pissed, but you can it, take anything and make anybody sound like an asshole i know if you don't like somebody person. you can be like well she said blah 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 right. when you she was just joking case- Right. You can build a case against him. even her saying, I killed him. Did she say, I killed him? Or did she no, say, she was, oh, I killed him? You know, I, I know. mean, but even that like person saying, oh, he said he couldn't get rid of her. Who knows how he said that? And he might be one of those people that, oh, I'm talking to my ex-girlfriend and he acts differently. You can make throwaway statements about anybody and then somebody can come back and, and him make saying i'm not a family man. he obviously if he did stuff with the kids like that going right. on hikes with them and stuff i know a lot of guys that date people with kids right. that don't even i always imagine on cases like that well if i were on a jury the first thing i would do is like make two columns make a column of evidence and stuff that's not evidence and you look at it and how much of the actual evidence well, they couldn't use filmed. most of it. And, they couldn't well, even, they I couldn't, don't think they could even use the gun like, that We don't much. really know what was in her diary. We have no idea what no. she said. And these are men, bitter men, one who's in the middle of a divorce, I whose know. wife is leaving him, interpreting her diary. The gun was all over the place. It was in somebody's glove compartment. They were putting bullets in and out there doing all sorts. And so, so there's no like chain of evidence for the gun where you could determine if it's a gun that would go off. Or if it's a gun that you have to do a lot of work to actually shoot somebody and it's not going to accidentally shoot. So there was really no evidence at all against her. When I thought back on it before I started researching it, like that she was a jealous woman that shot him in in anger or something. And that's not true. She didn't really have any reason to want to kill him. Oh, I didn't say, I forgot to say this, but she still lives in Aspen, I believe. She married her attorney Mm, um, and they still live there and she raised her kids there. And good. Well, good for her for... But you, know, um, you can't I feel, win. It is sad. But the bigger thing is that doesn't sound like it was much of a issue with this case is maybe people just shouldn't fucking have loaded guns sitting around their house. Maybe you shouldn't yeah. have a Luger that dad brought back from World War II sitting around, especially a house with little kids in it. It's just not just like, but it's similar with the movie set yes. shooting. If people aren't playing with frigging guns, but have them for very specific reasons and care for them the way you're supposed to care for a gun, a lot less people will be dead. Accidental shootings, like one of the things with Alec Baldwin shooting is people are saying, oh, there's all sorts of accidental shootings. The media is just focusing on this one. Well, first of all, there's obvious reasons why the media is focusing on this one. But the other thing is, yes, there are accidental shootings because guns are like totems and extensions of people's dicks and all sorts of other things. And maybe we need to crack down on how guns are used and how they appear. And I'm now God knows I'm not the first person to say this, but this wasn't like a gun she had for her safety locked away in a drawer with ammo locked somewhere else. You know, whoever was saying, oh, why did she need a gun? It was a friggin' Luger from World War II that doesn't sound like it was in great condition shoved into a closet. I know. That's what the problem was, not whether Spider and Claude wanted to live together anymore. I know. 
so anyway well thank you i liked your celebrity ones but um i have a recommendation yes i can't wait (laughs) so before my recommendation we need to do an update to one of your recommendations oh see you're about to make some snotty face see now i can see you on zoom but then you realized it was you no you had recommended the book truly madly guilty by leanne moriarty given it a very good recommendation and you lent it to me and of course i was powering through the entire elizabeth george inspector lindley Uh, you know and they're all 900 page books so i I finally read this just the past couple days because i couldn't put it down it was written in 2016 but i don't want to give any spoilers but i i want to say as both a reader and writer that was probably one of the most perfect books you can read and and i know it sounds like that's a very general thing to say but i'll here's why are you gonna go through the list no i'm not because this isn't my nnw this is actually just a brief (laughs) update on your recommendation okay it was perfectly constructed there's something that happened and you don't know what it is and you don't find out till about a third of the way through the book but after that there's still suspense and tension there's multiple points of view she does a great job Mm. people other characters may have negative feelings about in their point of view you you empathize with the people and it's a it's a quite a trick to do that the mystery it's not a murder mystery or anything but what happened is very satisfying it's redemptive in the fact that this is a little bit of a spoiler but she isn't one of those writers who has to have some big twist at the end where something really awful happens to somebody you like i find it actually more satisfying her conclusions that she came to with the characters it's extremely well written and i don't just mean technically but i mean in a way that draws you in where you're not thinking about the writing like what you said she has different layers to her it's very easy to read and it seems like it's a light like a story oh you know but it's not it's not the way she she delves into people's you know she also wrote big little lies and all which was very very good too. and i think it's easy for people to dismiss what she does is chick lit yes but it's really masterful writing and i strongly it's called truly madly guilty it came out 2016 by Mm -hmm. liam moriarty and i strongly piggybacking on your recommendation of a few episodes ago um maybe what 600 pages or so but i read it in a couple days it's very and um and i'm not a fast reader because i like to I don't like skim over things like some people do. So anyway, but my... I knew you'd like it. Well, you knew I'd like it. I know. I wanted you to see that. I thought you needed some help. In in fact, I'm going to plagiarize it and (laughs) throw away the book I've been working on for a couple of years. Like I said, just change the setting and the names. One thing I like about her and also the writer Eleanor Lippman does this mm, too is yeah. she has affection for her characters yes Liam moriarty does even people who you maybe quote unquote aren't supposed to like have redeeming qualities and things about them that are likable you know there's a lot of books especially domestic suspense which this kind of was and stuff where the characters are all hard-edged and cynical with unreliable narrators mm-hmm. and it's you so can't really like now. anyone and it's I find it much more pleasurable to read a book where even though people are flawed, there are likable 
things about them and you care about what happens to them like the friendship between the two women was very realistic yes and then it was complicated and you can understand both of the feelings that they had for each Mm -hmm. other and also the men the husbands and people's impression like oliver the dorky husband people's impression of him versus who he was and there were a couple things that happened like the big thing when you finally find out what the big thing has happened that i just found actually thrilling i i don't want to say a lot because i don't want to spoil it but when you find out what this big awful thing that happened is it was so well done not some cheap trite thing no and so again highly recommend but now to my nnw okay my nnw is the tv show it's originally a bbc show endeavor that i watched on amazon prime this is a show constantly scrolling yeah, by I when you it. yeah. stuff to watch. It's the prequel to the Inspector Morse series, which I watched when it was originally on Masterpiece Theater from 1988 to I think 2001. And I hadn't rewatched any of it, but I liked had liked Inspector Morse a lot. I just read it was the most watched detective series in the history of British television. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. And yeah. I also like the sequel, Inspector Lewis. I actually liked him a little bit more than Morse. And he had been Morse's sergeant. And yes, he became, I remember and so him, he had a character. sequel. Oh, I didn't watch that. That was good because I think detective shows have evolved over the years, but I had always just kind of resisted Endeavor. I just, it's just like eh, i don't know yeah. i like inspector morse but when i was visiting liz in oregon and she was recommending it to me and she said don't think of it as young inspector morse just think of it as its own something show. separate okay. something separate the show like morse and like sergeant lewis is filmed in oxford england which is a beautiful place to film a show it's also interesting because you know all the colleges you know oxford yeah. university is actually all these colleges and shit it had been long enough ago that I'd watched Morse, which now I'm starting to rewatch a little that it didn't bother me. One thing mm-hmm. that kind of bothered Liz is she couldn't see the actor, Sean Evans, yeah. who plays young yeah, Morse as being him. Well, least, one, uh... it's funny because I was watching like the first episode of Morse last night that was made in 1987. I'm like, well, for one thing, he's too much older because Endeavor takes place in the mid sixties, mid to late sixties. And then I looked it up and the actor, John Thaw, who played Morse was like 45 at the time. <laughs> and here I am thinking he's like 60 or whatever i realized the young actor sean evans not young but the guy who plays morris in the 60s does have some of the same mannerisms and stuff and actually did a good job and they do borrow some things from the show like superintendent strange in the Morse series as a constable in endeavor but you don't have to have watched Morse at all to enjoy this. And I'll go through my NNW. Oh, and I want to say there were seven seasons, at least on Amazon Prime. Each one was four episodes, oh. except for season Sorry. seven, which was only three, which I didn't look up. So when the third one ended and I was hoping for a fourth and there Aww. wasn't one, I had a little bit of a meltdown. Aww, poor Maybe Each episode without commercials is about an hour 45 or so. I powered through it in short order. But anyway, so bad reenactments. There aren't any, you know, it's because it's fiction and stuff. There are flashbacks, um, so I guess you could I guess you could say the whole show's of one giant flashback, <laughs> but um, no reenactments, so nothing taken away there. Narrative cliches, there are a few. 
minor ones, not big enough to take points away, although I did struggle with myself a little bit about this. Like sometimes, for instance, you can figure out who the murderer is going to be. Like there was one where they call in, nowadays they call a profiler, but back then he was a psychologist. And I could just tell, and I think because I've seen it before on some shows, you know the profiler is actually going to be the murderer. Not to spoil that for people. Oh my God. Um, Thanks a lot. <laughs> so it's a little stuff like that, but I'm not enough to take away points. Racial gender obtuseness, I'm taking away half a point. It, because it just made in the past few years, it's more woke about race and gender. But in the first season, which is in 1966, there's a nurse who lives in the apartment next to his and she's black and they end up dating and nobody ever brings up the fact she's black. Uh. And I know it's Oxford, England and that the U.S., but I can't imagine Oxford, England in 1966 was any more racially diverse than, like, Maine is in 2000. Yeah, exactly. So there's no, like, racial tension, which I thought was really weird. Then after she's gone, there aren't any more Black people, which may be realistic, but then when Black people do start showing up again, it's for race-specific things, like these Rhodesian guys who... But then, like, the last couple seasons, more Black people show up. And gender, it's similar in that in the first couple seasons, every once in a while, there was a female constable who doesn't have a name or any lines or something. But then they get a cute... WPC, they used to call them woman police constable because they couldn't just be police constables. They had to be labeled women police constables. And she does have her struggles, but like all the guys, like the regulars who we like, all seem to be a lot more (laughs) feminist or a lot less sexist than you would guess that guys in the 60s would be. And this could also go under anachronisms or inaccuracies or holes, but I'm putting it under racial gender obtuseness i didn't look to see who the writers were but almost like every single tv show in almost every movie in the world it's you know the people who control the content are mostly male and like there's one in the sixth or seventh season which is in the late 60s 69 or 70 women at one of the women's colleges are having a like a women's awareness discussion or something. And, and Morse is like, well, to one of the women, well, what do you want to be liberated from? Ha ha. It's kind of glib about women's rights. Like it's, you almost feel like they're trying to make an effort throughout the series to show that they're aware of women's struggle, but they never quite get it right and you'd think because there are so many women these cops have to deal with who are really horribly treated by men and murdered that there'd be a little enlightenment and maybe we're supposed to make that connection i don't know but so half a point there lack of good visuals i'm taking nothing away because it's beautifully absolutely beautifully filmed oxford's a beautiful place and it makes it look beautiful there's a lot of drone shots of the beautiful i keep saying beautiful of the you know that iconic yellowy orangey stone mm-hmm. buildings they have and they make great use of the bridge of size and that big round building i think it's called the camera it's really really beautifully filmed and like you watch the old moore show and it's on video or what and this is on film mm. and high definition has really done yeah. that. it's just gorgeous gorgeous mm, to watch okay. and you can tell the people who film it excuse my lack of technical knowledge they love that city they really use the architecture and things like stained glass it's a beautiful show to watch mm. missing pieces I'm taking away a point. 
as much as I liked the show, there are some major <laughs> things like the girlfriend I mentioned earlier, the end of one season, he's thinking of quitting and he's like, we could go abroad. And, and she's like, yeah, okay. So we're a couple. And, and, and he obviously st- doesn't quit, but the next season, she's just not there. He's moving mm. into a new apartment. You don't see her again. There's one scene cause she's a nurse where he's in a hospital and he just kind of says hello to her. And then a uh, season later, he needs some expertise and he asks her at the hospital and she's like something like, you know, one tip, treat your next girlfriend better or something. It's like, they kind of forgot he was going out with her at the end of one season. And all of a sudden she wasn't there with no explanation. And there were a couple things like that. There was the end of another series where he had, transferred to scotland yard but then the next season he's back at the oxford city police nobody even says oh so you decided not to go to london (laughs) after all there was an episode with a bank robbery where people were taken hostage and there was a weird thing earlier maybe this was just to establish it was the bank where he was there with the bank manager and the bank manager was going over these bounced checks he had which is really weird because there's never been any indication that he's bouncing checks or has, I mean, he lives frugally and I know he doesn't make enough money and some of them are to a bookie. Now his father who had just died somewhere North in Northern England had a bad gambling habit and Morse didn't gamble. So I'm like, okay, this is something somebody's using his account, blah, blah, blah. So, I mean, there's gotta be some reason that he's got bounced checks to a bookie. We never see him gambling, Uh but you never hear about it again, Uh unless I miss it. It was weird. That bank robbery in the next season, they were talking about it and it was jewelry store robbery in the next season. Oh, that's weird. They referred back to it and it was confusing me because I'm like, wait, are they talking about the same thing? Or was there a different thing involving these people? And then there was another thing where there was a woman who was murdered I think in season six and then the same same group of people was in an episode in season seven and they got her name wrong they got her last name wrong and I'm like it's not that hard when there's only four episodes a season to get that stuff right and that's why I'm taking a point away and there were a few other just odd things like that early on evidence kept disappearing and it was through several episodes and possibly seasons but then it just that whole thing just disappeared you never found out why it's like they were leading up to something and then decided not to do it inaccuracies and acronisms minus half a point I want to say first, they do a very, very, very good job of it looking like the 60s. The sets look like they're the 60s. The clothes do. And it's not just somebody's idea of how people dress, but how people actually did. The hairstyles do. The language, for the most part, does. There were a couple little things like somebody said at one point, wait for it. And nobody was saying that in the 60s. They had an American woman who had just moved there and she said somebody had gone missing. And we weren't saying gone missing in the US till the 90s. I guarantee you because I hate that phrase so much. I'm an expert Mm. on it. There's the race and gender stuff. I will say as far as anachronisms go, much fewer than you would expect. And they must try really hard because, you know, one reason I I only watched a couple episodes of that show that's about like the FBI's yeah, profile in the seventies is because they talked like it was. Oh, you mean Mine Hunter? Mine Hunter, right? Thank you. Right, it's because they talked like it was two thousand. Yes, I didn't like that, and I couldn't stand it. So uh, I will say they do a very, very good job with this. You're convinced it's the sixties, except for those little things. Storytelling, it's very good. It could be a police procedural. But it's very, like the original Inspector Morris, very character-based. It's true to his character. He's kind of a 
esoteric guy who people think is a big pain in the ass and but not the cliche pain in the ass you get on you know he's not one of those breaking all the rules guys but he's driven by his intellect i know that sounds pretentious or whatever but he just sees things other people don't see and he's driven by the truth but they do a good job of you feel for him you feel for the people who are annoyed by him the beginnings especially the first few seasons are very interesting he's an opera buff at the beginning they'll have classical music or opera playing it is one of the choirs at oxford sometimes or whatever or somebody's listening to it and they show different scenes of people who are going to figure in the plot. But it goes through a lot of things really fast. It's one of those shows you have to pay attention to. The way they do it, it draws you in. The storytelling is very clever, but you have to pay attention. I have my captions on. I have to look up a lot of shit on my phone because there's just phrases I don't understand. Like somebody had a secondment. And I'm like, wait, is that good or bad? What does that mean? And I looked it up and it's like where you're transferred to a temporary job i had no clue it's a lot of stuff like that because it's not made for americans it's you know a british show and which is good i had to look up a lot of stuff on oxford thank god we can look up stuff on our phones so i, I know, know they're talking like- about there are some little jokes like people who are really familiar with morse and i read some of these because it was on amazon prime you know with the x-ray thing so sometimes things are- oh yeah like there's a newspaper editor and she's actually really good not a cliche at all who's kind of friendly with morse she's played by the daughter of the actor john thaw who played the original morse Mm. but her last name is frizzell or something you know her name is thaw her last name is thaw so frizzell is like i don't know a french or something for thaw you know so there's all these Uh. little jokes i'm sure i miss most of them there are some themes that last through a season or through the series There are other things that are just in the one show and they do a good job of pacing. It's never boring. Freshness, very fresh. Even though it's a prequel to a show many people are very familiar with, you don't have to watch it. It's very fresh in its own right. Beating the drum, they could beat the drum about his personality. They could beat the drum about this is young, more, blah, blah, blah. They don't. There's no drum beating. So I think that's an eight I gave it. I highly, highly recommend it. If you like British, I think mom would like it. I think you would like it. You do have to have the captions on if you're not Well, we do anyway. I I put them on for every show, even American shows. I do too now. You have to pay attention because a lot of the scenes are really short. Things happen fast. And they give the viewer credit for having some intelligence and some critical thinking skills. And they don't bang you over the head with shit. So like one phrase or one scene can be, you know, instrumental into understanding what's going on. But I I was pleasantly surprised and I watched it because our older sister Liz urged me to. And so big and I did binge. It wasn't like, oh, I watched a couple episodes here and there. I was addicted for about a week and a half and I miss it miss it deeply i think one of the good things about watching by yourself like i used to do is that you can't as you don't have you a can do whatever you want if you want to binge something yes and i think too we need to remind people because we've stopped doing this but there are people listeners who desperately want to reach out and discuss with us that even though we don't have an active like facebook group or anything we do have our facebook page which is crime and stuff on facebook and you can you can do what other people do and respond to stuff on the 
page. Right, like, right. Respond to a post, or you can send us a message on Facebook. Right. In our Twitter account, Crime and Stuff with an yes. and We also have an email account, Crime and, with and spelled out, stuff at gmail.com. Yeah. So any of those ways people have shared their opinions with us. We actually have an actual website too, crimeandstuffonline.com. Right. And we have a contact form on there. If you really like us or feel sorry for us or wish we would get our (laughs) fucking shit together on our audio equipment and stuff, you can always become a Patreon supporter. And we have a button to donate on our website, Crime and Stuff Online. Yes, you can. And you can, or you can Google Crime and Stuff and Patreon and find us and we appreciate it. Okay. And thank you. Okay. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Ah! What? What happened? What? Can you can still hear me? Because yes. why is it? What? I don't know. What's can you wrong? see me? Yes. Oh, okay. Because I can't see the screen. Oh, there. Okay. <sighs> I'm sorry. I get so confused. I'm old. That's no excuse. <laughs> <laughs> oh.